Morning. morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. good. It is good to see you, family. Um, we're going to be in James chapter 4 this morning. Um, for those of you who I've not been able to meet yet, my name is Seth. I get to work with the youth here at Fremont E-Free, and it is an awesome opportunity. I have the greatest job on the planet. Um, and so, yeah, guys, man, we serve a great God. Amen. Oh my goodness, worshiping him with you guys has been phenomenal. We do not deserve this God. We don't deserve to come into his presence. We don't deserve to have fellowship with him. But because of his great mercy and sending his son to the earth and dying in the cross in our place, we can now draw near to this holy God and have fellowship with him forever. And when we come to recognize what a holy God is, what James is going to be laying out for us today is when we see this kind of sin in our lives, how we are to respond, man, to have restored fellowship with him. And so as you guys know, we've been going through the book of James. This is written by the half-brother of Jesus, not James the Apostle. And it was written around the mid-40s AD is what they believe. Uh, to it's, it's written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which is really kind of the, the church that shotgunned out from Jerusalem um, once persecution uh, began to start. And man, everything we're going to be reading about in the passage this morning is very relevant um, to, to us and where we're at in the 21st century as believers. So before we dive into this passage, though, let me pray for us and uh, just ask God to teach us this morning. Lord, I want to thank you for the uh, tremendous privilege of knowing you, God, of being um, forgiven by you, um, Jesus, to be able to enter into such an intimate uh, fellowship with you, Lord, is a blessing that we are entirely undeserving of. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, would your Holy Spirit convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you open up our eyes to understand your word, Lord? Would it cut through bone and marrow to the dividing portions of the soul? And Lord, deep within our soul, would it take root? And God, would you transform us from the inside out, that we'd be a people who know your grace and your forgiveness, and Lord, who walk according to your will, as we see lined out here in James 4. Oh God, magnify your name in our midst, and it's in your great name we pray. Amen. All right. As you guys turn to James chapter 4, I would encourage you all to stand for the reading of Scripture. Standing is a way that we acknowledge that this is the word of God. It is due our reverence. And I will also have the words on screen. This is what it says. James chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 7 through 12. It says this. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You may all have a seat. All right, this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, is very closely connected to the six verses that came before it. That's why if you guys are looking at your Bibles, you're going to see that it, many of them group that passage under a single subheading. 
verses 7 through 12 actually provide the application for verses 1 through 6. So that being said, let me give us a brief review from what we learned last week. In chapter 4, verse 1, we were like, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What causes division in the church are my sinful passions. Okay, not my family members' passions, not my boss, not my spouse, not my coworkers, me. What causes divisions among us are my fleshly desires. These are what cause me to be an adulterous person that drive me to seek friendship with the world, which in turn makes me an enemy of God. It is my sinful passions that make me an adulterer against the Lord and his enemy. You see, this is a truly abhorrent and serious problem. This sort of worldly living provokes our God to jealousy because his bride belongs to him and not to the world. And yet, when I give myself over to my sinful passions and I seek friendship with the, with the world, what I'm doing in reality is betraying him. And in verse 6, we see that even in the midst of our clear betrayal of God, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's the context for our passage today. So the main point I want to drive home as we go through the text this morning is really simple. Simplest point I've ever had. Repent. Repent. And the way we repent is by submitting yourself to God, verses 7 through 10, and then by ceasing to speak evil against others, verses 11 through 12. So let's go through and let's tackle the first one. Repent by submitting yourself to God. I want you guys to take a look at the first half of verse 7 with me. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, whenever you're reading through the Bible, just as a general rule of thumb, if you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to ask, what is it therefore? And in this instance, it is drawing us back to verse 6. It says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if I want to be a recipient of God's grace, then what do I need to be? Proud or humble? Look at you guys. Way to go. Yes, humble. And I need to humbly submit myself to the will of God again. Now, the Greek word that's used here for submit is hupatasso. Everyone look at your neighbor and say hupatasso. There we go. Scholar. All right. This means to subordinate or to subject oneself under, to, to give oneself to another, to obey. So if I have made myself an enemy of God, and if I have committed spiritual adultery against him, then I need to humble myself by returning to God and coming once again under his rule and his desires for my life. What James is calling us to here is repentance. And I know you guys have heard this analogy before, but repentance is this idea that I'm walking in this direction, away from God, on a, in, on a path in disobedience to him, And when he convicts me of my sin and I see the reality of it, I turn from it. I turn back to God to believe in him in faith and I come once again underneath his rule, his reign. I submit myself to his will for my life. This is the drumbeat of the Christian life. This happens when we first put our faith in Christ. We turn from our life of sin and we submit to the Lord, but we never get past this, right? I'm sure you guys can identify with the song that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts are an idol-making factory, as John Calvin would say. 
And when we see that, we need to turn from our wicked ways, return to God, and submit ourselves once again unto Him. And so as we submit ourselves to God, it's going to work itself out in a number of different ways, which this passage outlines. And so let's take a look at the first one. If you submit yourself to God, you will, by default, resist the devil. We see this in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So I want to use an analogy. Let's say that as a kid, you want to submit to your parents' rules. You're a good kid. You love your parents. You want to obey them. But you have a sibling who likes to try and entice you to do things maybe your parents don't want you to do. So you want to have a sibling like that, by the way? Anyone grow up with a sibling like that? Oh, good. Very few of us. I'd love to hear that. Um, I kind of was that sibling a little bit growing up. And just to clarify, that was not good. Okay, I should not have tried to entice my siblings to do stupid things. Um, however, so let's say your parents lay down this rule. Don't play in the street. Okay, and let's say that your sibling tries to come and entice you to go run out into the street for a minute and run back. Now, if you want to submit to your parents' rule, are you going to resist or comply with their temptation? What's the answer? Resist. That's right. You are going to resist them. Why? Because you love your parents. You want to honor them. Therefore, you're going to trust your parents over what your sibling is trying to tempt you to do. Likewise, if you choose, choose to trust your father's wisdom and submit to his rule, you will by default resist the devil's temptation to rebel. You see, sin and death entered into the world because our original parents, Adam and Eve, did not submit themselves to the command of God. And therefore, they did not resist the devil when he came to tempt them. So if we are going to experience the grace that God gives to the humble, we must turn from our path of rebellion and submit ourselves to the Lord, which will by default cause us to stiff arm the devil and his temptations. You see, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 hits the nail on the head when it says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Look, I, it, we don't often think about this, but spiritual warfare is real. Right now, there are demons at work in the world that want to carry forth Satan's desire to steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't want you to submit to God, and he is going to take some shots at you to try and pull you away from that. And when you sense that temptation coming into your life to give into sin, to follow worldly ways through God's Spirit, we need to resist him. And the effect is this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Just as the devil ended up leaving Jesus after tempting him in the wilderness, if you continue to resist the devil, he will flee from you. The devil is like a robber who breaks and enters into someone's home. I don't know if you guys have watched any YouTubes on these guys. These guys are cowards. They're not looking for a fight. They're looking for a victim. And if by God's grace, when the devil tries to make a breach into your soul to tempt you, if you resist him with the word of God and through the power of his Holy Spirit, he will run because he can't contend with the Lord's Spirit. And so I want to encourage you guys, no, resist the devil. He will flee from you. All right, another implication we have of submitting ourselves to God is this, that we will draw near to God. We see this in verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If I submit myself to God, by default, I'm going to draw near to him. 
You see, the whole point of coming back under Christ's authority and reign in my life is to seek relational restoration with him. I'm choosing to leave my path of sin in order to draw close to him. And I want you guys to see the grace of God that is poured out for us in this verse. You see, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It doesn't say draw near to God and he might draw near to you. It doesn't say draw near to God and he will consider drawing near to you. It says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Does anyone else find this staggering? Does anyone else think this is pretty incredible? Because what it's saying here is that the holy, holy God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the possessor of eternal life, who is unspeakably glorious, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is altogether righteous and exalted in majesty, who is worshipped by billions of angels and living creatures that surround him, who say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, and they won't even gaze upon his glory. That when I go and when I sin against that God, and I fornicate with his enemy, he says that if I will but draw near to him again, he will draw near to me. I want you to hear, we don't deserve that kind of a God we don't deserve a kind of God who will forgive us like that, and yet that's what he extends to us. You see, it's amazing that we've been able to come into this relationship with God in the first place, but to think that he would take us back after we have treated him as such is staggering. Praise God for his grace. Do we have any idea how merciful and forgiving he is? The answer is no. We don't have the slightest clue. But we should try and understand it just a little bit more because that kind of love will transform your life. Praise God. Part of drawing near to God is going to involve cleansing our hands. We see this in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Just as the priest serving in the tabernacle was required to cleanse his hands before entering into the presence of God, so we as a kingdom of priests must cleanse our hands of their filth as we come to approach Him. You see, Isaiah had this rebuke of the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. If you have your Bibles, I want you to flip there. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I'll also have the words on screen. This is what it says. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, this was a people that honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And it was shown in the fact that their hands were covered with the blood of evil, injustice, and oppression. 
And they are called here to reform their ways as they submit themselves unto God, knowing that ultimately only He can make them clean. And so when we cleanse our hands, what we're doing is we're turning from our wicked deeds to use our hands to serve the Lord and to honor Him. According to verse 8, drawing near to God will also involve us purifying our hearts. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, it's not enough to simply change my actions. I need to seek to purify my heart. You see, we do what we do because we are who we are. Our actions don't spring up spontaneously out of a void. And so repentance works itself out by turning from our wicked actions and seeking to root out the wicked desires from within our hearts. And this is entailed in purifying our hearts. And so brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, are you doing this? When you hear wicked words coming out of your mouth and wicked actions being performed by your hands, do you repent of those actions and seek to root out the passions that they sprang from? I want to tell you firsthand, this is not easy to do. It's not always easy to identify the sin that's driving, motivating your actions. But they spring from sinful passions and desires. Therefore, don't just remove the fruit, but get to the root. We all know if you've gone out, and if you're trying to take care of weeds, and you're just breaking them off halfway and then casting it off, they're going to grow right back. And so part of repenting and drawing near to God involves us seeking to purify our hearts. And James identifies part of the problem here in this passage when when he calls them double-minded. Now, a person who's double-minded is someone who wavers between trusting God and following his own passions. It's someone who listens to the wisdom of God on one hand, but then they also listen to the wisdom of the world. They're basically living with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. They're hosting fleshly pursuits in their hearts instead of evicting them. And I want to ask, is that you? Are you you the sort of person who listens to the word of God on Sunday morning, but then lives like the rest of the world during the week? Do you think the same way the world thinks? Do you pursue the things that the rest of the world pursues? I mean, are you like a person who shows up to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and is like, yeah, man, alcohol is terrible. It will ruin your life. But then you go and you hang out with your friends that weekend and you see that they're all sitting around enjoying some some beer, and you think, man, is it really going to hurt me that much to have a drink? Like, is it really that bad for my life? And you waver between two minds. One mind that's like, no, it is evil. Like, you should not do this. And the other one's like, is it really, though? Right? That, that's a picture of someone who's being double-minded. Instead of trusting the people who care about him and leaning into their wisdom, he's, he's going back and forth between one and the other. And what we are called here, what the double-minded is called here to do is to repent. But I want to ask, is this your heart? Do you waver between trusting God's word, but then believing your sinful desires that tell you the opposite? If so, don't just repent of your sinful actions, but seek to purify the heart that gave those actions their birth. We need to learn to trust in the Lord with all your heart to lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Thirdly, if I submit myself to God, 
I'm going to be wretched and mourn and weep. We see this in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is a command that we as Midwesterners, Midwesterners, if I can pronounce it, tend to be a little more uncomfortable with. Like, okay, I get that I should reform my ways, turn from my evil actions. I get that I should seek to purify my heart. Okay, identify the sin that it's coming from, seek to get rid of it. Sounds great. But weep, mourn, let my laughter be turned to, to gloom. I mean, do I really need to cry before God? I mean, because if I'm being honest, like grown men in Nebraska don't really cry, right? And to that mindset, I would say this. Until your sin moves you to tears, you're probably not seeing it for how bad it really is. Until your sin moves you to tears, you're probably not seeing it for how bad it really is. I want to speak to the ladies in the room for just a minute. Sisters, I know for some of you, this may be all too familiar of a scenario. And if that's you, I am so sorry. I want this illustration to deepen your affections for Christ. But for all my sisters here, I want you to imagine if your husband cheated on you and slept with another woman. I want you to imagine that. But imagine that he comes back and he says, Hey, hon, uh, I'm sorry. I know I probably shouldn't have slept with so-and-so. That wasn't good, and obviously it wasn't very considerate of our relationship, so I'm, I'm sorry for doing that. Will you forgive me? Would you consider that a sufficient apology for adultery? Yes or no? The answer is no. A guy who responds like that doesn't get it. You see, he doesn't recognize the gravity of his sin. He doesn't recognize the weight of his betrayal. He doesn't realize the havoc that he has brought upon your soul or the destruction that he has wrecked upon your relationship. If he recognized how abominable his actions were, he would weep. He would mourn. He would come back and be bitter in, in repentance over his sin. What we don't recognize is that our friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. That's what we have done against the holy God. That should draw us to weep. An awareness of that should wreck us emotionally. That being said, I want to ask you, when was the last time that you wept over your sin? When was the last time you mourned? Because you got a clear look of the wickedness that was in your heart and you hated what you saw. When was the last time you were moved to tears because you tasted the goodness of God in the midst of your own wretchedness? And if you're anything like me, it's been too long. Too long you've struggled with pride and you've just overlooked it, casting a blind eye because you think, oh, maybe it's not really that bad. It is. And God's calling us here to repent a true recognition of the utter depravity of sin and its thorough entrenchment in our hearts should move us to weep over our Romans 7 condition. And when we do that, we're humbling ourselves before the Lord. As verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God exalts the humble man. Therefore, if pride comes before a fall, then humility comes before exaltation. 
So humble yourself before the Lord. Weep over the depravity of your sin, and the Lord will exalt you. When we repent, we submit ourselves to God by choosing to resist the devil. We once again draw near to God, and we humble ourselves before him. Such repentance will also be characterized by ceasing to speak evil against one another. And this is my second point. And don't worry, it is definitely shorter than the first point. All right, read with me verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. In this verse, we are called to quote-unquote not speak evil against one another. The Greek word here is katalalelo. Everyone say katalalelo. Awesome. It means to speak against someone, to slander, to criminate them. This includes gossiping, or as my students would say, talking trash, casting shade on people. So why should we not do this? According to verse 11, because when we speak against or judge our brother, we're actually speaking against and judging the law. It is really sad. Okay, now the law here... The law here is often a reference to the Old Testament law um, that, that we find in the, uh, uh, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And it also includes the Ten Commandments that were given at Mount Sinai. And so we have to say, okay, well, how is that the case? How is speaking against my brother speaking against the law? Well, what does the law call us to do? I want you guys to flip to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. Leviticus chapter 19, Verses 16 through 18. I'll also have the words up on the screen. This is what it says. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So if God's law here tells us to not slander our brother, but instead to love him as yourself, and you don't do that, what you're doing is you're slandering and judging the law. You're speaking evil against God's law because you're essentially telling people by your actions that his word is not worth following. Now, this would have astounded James' more predominantly Jewish audience because to speak evil against God's law and to judge God's law is tantamount to speaking evil and judging God. They would have seen it as being truly abhorrent, and in all honesty, it truly is. Yet what they and we don't often realize is that when we slander our brother, we're slandering the law of God. To disobey God's word is to slander it. To directly disobey God's word is to judge it as not being worth following. What we're saying to God is, my way is better than the way that God calls me to live. I know what my life needs better than God does, so forget his commands, I will walk in my own wisdom. That's the heart that our actions reveal. And you see, such a person is not a doer of God's law, as the, as the verse says, but he is one who is presiding as a judge over it, questioning the wisdom of God's decree and finding God's understanding lacking. 
Honestly, I can't think of a more terrifying place to be than seating myself upon a throne of straw to sit in judgment over God's law. And yet in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. There is only one who has given us the binding law of God, and that is God himself. There is only one judge who will weigh the actions of men against the law that he has established for them to follow, and that is Yahweh. That same judge is the only one who is able to save and destroy forever, and his name is Jesus. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Would you seat yourself on Christ's throne and execute judgment in his place? You can't save your neighbor from death, nor can you condemn him eternally. You are not the giver of God's law, nor the arbiter of man's eternal destiny. So who are you to sit in judgment on him and to say what he is before the Lord? Can you not have the humility to recognize that there are parts of your neighbor's life that you can't see? Can you not have the humility to recognize that even the parts of his life that you can see, you don't fully understand? You see, this falls right in line with what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 1 through 3, when he says this. You'll need to turn there in your Bibles. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? This also falls in line with what the Holy Spirit taught in Romans 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, we as sinful human beings are not in a place to fully understand or execute God's righteous judgment Therefore, we must not speak evil against one another or judge according to our own wisdom. But I want us to see here, we are called to make judgments according to God's word, okay? So that if someone is sinning against God and what his word teaches, we need to be like Paul who rebuked Peter for not fellowshipping with Christian, uh, with Christian Gentiles while he was in the midst of Christian Jews, we need to be like Peter, who ended up rebuking Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. In both cases, both Paul and Peter's assessment of each situation was true, and their judgment rightly identified the sin and rebuked it. Peter himself being rebuked and also giving rebuke. But if we do sense the need to rebuke a brother, we need to have these qualities characterize our rebuke. Number one, our rebuke should be humble because we recognize that we also struggle with the same sins and the same sinful nature. Number two, our rebuke should be humble. 
because there's a lot that we don't see or understand. Our picture is very incomplete. We are not God who knows all things and will bring to light what is in darkness. Number three, our rebuke should be gracious because with the measure that we use, it will be measured to us. And number four, our rebuke should be rooted in God's word because it is not our opinion that condemns them, but what is in accordance with God's law. That is the clear teaching of his scripture. And if we can learn to rebuke like that, it would go a long ways towards preventing division in the church. All right. So the main point I've been trying to drive home through the message this morning is repent. We do this by submitting ourselves to God and by ceasing to speak evil against others. Man, all six verses we've been looking at this morning are all application. This is the application of the first six verses. And so let me bring it home with some questions I want you to consider. Are you quarreling and fighting with others? Do you speak evil against other people, whether they be in the church or outside the church? Are you judging someone or withholding forgiveness from them? Have you written someone off as being a sinner who needs to repent and, and woe on them if they don't while turning a blind eye to your own sin? Do you permit jealousy of other people to remain in your heart? Do you allow selfish ambition to guide much of your life? Have you bought into worldly wisdom and believed the messages that it sells you? Have you sought to be friends with the world? Would they consider you more of an insider than an outsider? Do you waver between trusting God's word and believing what your own desires tell you? If this is you, and I guarantee this has been all of us at one point in our lives, then repent. You've been flirting, even sleeping with the world instead of remaining faithful to your God. Be wretched, mourn, and weep because of our God who has been nothing but faithful to us. Because here's the truth. Our God is a great God. He did not have to leave heaven and come to earth, and yet he did. He took on human limitations. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. A loving, compassionate, selfless life. And he ultimately gave his life, dying a criminal's death on the cross. So that every single person who looks to him in saving faith, who trusts that he is the Son of God and his sacrifice is sufficient for me, that he bears their penalty on the cross and then he gives to them his righteousness so that we would be forgiven and washed clean and, and, and so that our, our garments, our, our soul is made white like snow. We are fully approved before God. And to show that God accepted his son's sacrifice within three days, Jesus rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of God. And make no bones about it, our God is coming back to reign. He will rule over this earth. Have you turned to Him? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ? You see, in Christ there is abundant grace and forgiveness to atone for every sin and act of rebellion. He is just. He will establish His throne in justice. He is also forgiving and merciful. So repent. Return from your sins. Return to your God and walk with Him on the path of life everlasting. Let me close this out in prayer. Jesus, you're an awesome God. So great, 
so glorious beyond anything we've come to understand. Oh, Lord God, we pray for your forgiveness. Lord, we have been unfaithful. We have been adulterous, Lord. We have been double-minded. Lord, we have sinned against you. God, would you have mercy on us? Would you help us to turn from our path of wickedness, to cleanse our sins, to purify our hearts, to draw near once again to a God who is so gracious, so merciful, so undeserving for us? And Lord, would we submit ourselves to your rule, your reign, your will, that we may have fellowship with you as we prepare for your return as king forever. You are a great king. You are worthy of our worship. Oh God, be magnified in our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks for coming this morning, brothers and sisters. Go in God's peace.